This is an eavesdropping conversation and I'm here with Mira Benjamin. Hi Mira. <laughs> um, I'm going to uh, start with a question that I think I'm going to ask all the artists. Um, rather than me introducing you, I thought it might be nice to ask you how you describe the sort of music that you're involved in or the sort of music making that you do. It's difficult because my practice is fairly broad and I don't um, really think about specializing mm -hmm. exactly, but I think that the connecting thread that runs through everything I do is that it has to do with developing a practice of listening. Uh-huh. When you say listening, are you thinking about your listening? Or cultivating a listening practice for your audience? I mean, I, I guess, of course, they're not mutually exclusive, but... I'm definitely talking about my own listening, primarily. Um, in that I had a very conventional, classical music training. Mm -hmm. um, and that training tends to be very result-oriented. Yes. And in recent years, I've become very excited about the prospect of developing um, a practice that is more process-oriented. Yeah. So I'm very interested in having the question, hmm, what does this sound like in my mind always when I'm playing? So whether I'm playing, you know, something very concretely notated, like Howard Skempton's string quartet, one of his string quartets, or, um, or whether I'm playing something that is perhaps more open. Um, I think there, there's, there is always equally this question, what's this sounding like? Mm -hmm. um, it leaves, it leaves you um, in a position of curiosity as mm -hmm. opposed to a position of thinking up something and then spouting it out. Yeah. So it's definitely about my own practice of listening. Um, and I trust that the anyone else who's listening will also have their own practice of listening. Yes, I love that. I, I get frustrated with um, the, the way that I feel often um, funders in particular, um, uh, they don't trust an audience to trust the artist. That they're, they're, there's often this sense that the, the two sort of exist in a vacuum or that they come together at an event but that the process isn't actually shared and uh, so like there's this idea of what you know what am I doing as a performer for audiences it's like well I sort of trust the audiences that are interested in what I'm doing to come to the stuff that I do and if they're not interested then then they won't come isn't that isn't it quite simple isn't that <laughs> yes isn't that how it works and so I feel that about listening Absolutely, and the. I think it's a very. At least some might think it's a very experimental, way of of thinking about music to mm. to sort of, leave the experience of the audience member, to that audience member mm. that their their listening is their business, but um, isn't it always actually just mm. like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think so. Um, so you just used the word experimental. 
and um, I'm wondering how you got away from the conventional classical training into into the sort of music making that that you're doing now was it was it right from the outset a sort of resistance to um how did you frame it earlier just um the results based tradition that well at least i recognize goes with a lot of uh, traditional classical music playing right yeah so i've opened a can of worms with the word <laughs> experimental so let's just put that back and say okay. I didn't say it um but no um with respect to kind of common practice string playing mm. versus what I do now um yeah I had a very rigorous conservatory training uh which of course you know means that you play um one by one through a list of about 25 pieces and that's yeah. almost all you do um and I was frustrated as a child by that. And as soon as I got to university, I sought out composers at the university. Mm. Um, and really it just, you know, it came through playing the music of friends, undergrads and then in, in our postgrads and mm -hmm. then after and developing things through that. Yeah. And then you played with the Bozzinis for some time and do they do a, like a mixture of, say, 20th century or even more conventional repertoire alongside um, the new stuff that they do? Is yes, they do. Sort of, right. So I, I played for several years in that quartet, and I would say that at least during my tenure, it was probably about 10 to 15 percent uh, sort of older okay. repertoire and about 85 to 90 percent new experimental contemporary Mm. Uh, music written in the 21st century or late 20th century um, but I would imagine that yeah like any group who does largely all new music it depends on the year on, yes. the, on the season yeah yeah um, I'm wondering if you can tell me uh, some of the ideas that are exciting you at the moment in your work yeah um so one thing that I'm really interested in right now is um, concert-length pieces. Mm -hmm. So I've been working with a couple of, of composers this year to develop pieces that are sort of in excess of an hour or hovering around an hour because I like the idea of starting a concert, sitting for a long time and getting into a particular world and then finishing the concert. Mm. Um, or at the very least, you know, having a, a set that lasts a long time and then having a substantial interval and then having another set mm. that's something totally different. Um, I think it has to do with this listening that I've yeah, been doing. I was just thinking that. Um, but so I just, um, for the last year I've worked with James Weeks, we've just developed this wonderful new piece which he wrote for me, which is really special and which I've done a few performances and I'll do some more later in the year next year now um, and uh, I have a few other projects in the works these, these long pieces um, and a, an ongoing kind of fixation of mine is is to do with tuning practice as mm -hmm. well and I'm working on research about that at the moment and most of the pieces that I play in some way or another uh, deal with pitch 
um, whether explicitly in the score, as James has done, writing very finely tuned microtonal intervals, mm -hmm. or whether just because I choose to approach pitch in a discerning way. So I suppose I, I bring those fixations into my work, whether or not the composer has invited <laughs> them. <laughs> but yeah. And so who else are you working with at the moment? So you've got this new piece by James, which is up and running. Yep, I've got, well, I have this new project with this wonderful um, Norwegian sound artist, Girid Nordal Kaldestedt. Yeah, and we'll um, talk about talk a bit about her in a minute. Yeah, and um, I have a, a project that's sort of uh, ongoing with Amber Priestley. Um, mm. I did a piece of hers a couple of years ago, and we're now going to be uh, making some artistic films, oh, essentially, great. with the piece. So that's an exciting project for me. Um, and... Yeah, there are many other things in the sort of planning stages. Those are the ones that are going to be performed imminently. Have you always done a lot of commissioning? Yes. Yeah. Yes, commissioning is one of the central kind of focuses of my own practice. I don't compose at all myself. Mm -hmm. I've never been motivated to do so. But I, I'm very motivated to work collaboratively with composers who, who have some sympathetic interests. Yeah. And I, um, I think probably that, that new pieces account for 50% of what I do at any given time. That's great. Or more. At least I, I aim to make it that way. Yeah. And is that, um, have you found that the collaborative uh, partnership, I'm assuming, mainly um, thinking of two people, between you and the composer is, is something that has evolved in a in a tangible way over the years um, what I'm what I'm getting at is do you think that your your involvement in that collaboration has has changed or, or developed in in some way that that actually represents a trend or does it just fluctuate quite a lot depending on who you're working with do you mean with each composer yeah I think that I like to take, I like to play the long game with creations. Mm. Um, I like to take projects as slowly as they need to go and um, where possible apply for appropriate funding mm. to do so and where not possible I just do them without funding because I want to. Um, and I think think that when projects are given in the, the long enough timelines or the timelines that they desire, the, the piece always ends up, the outcome always ends up being far more rewarding. Mm. And I get, and has a lot more longevity. So all the pieces that I'm talking about right now, they're going to have many performances. Yes. You know, I, I hope for 20 performances for James's piece. I told him that and now he really likes that idea. <laughs> So, um, but I think that pieces grow as you play them, you know, and there's that old adage, you don't know a piece until you've performed it three times. But I think that that's very true, yeah. especially when we're talking about very long pieces. Yeah. How can you know a piece that lasts 60 minutes unless you've had the chance to really mm -hmm. play it through a lot of times, which of course you don't do in the practice studio. You do sections. So. Yeah. 
So I think, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but... Well, the answer's a different, different bit of it, but I think my question wasn't very clear. I was thinking, I was thinking um, well, for me, that the, the process over several years of collaborating with people has, has changed me, and I think mm. that oh. I've noticed a difference in the way that those collaborations operate that sounds that's a horrible technical term but the way that they unfold now oh yeah um and so i was just wondering whether whether that's been similar for you oh yes absolutely i mean a great example i have a very dear friend taylor brooke who is a composer based in new york now but we went through our undergrads and masters together mm -hmm. um he did his masters when i was doing my artist diploma and he uh, was one of the first people who I encountered who was working with Just Intonation. Oh, right. And he actually is responsible for getting me interested in <laughs> Just Intonation because um, I asked him for a solo piece and he wrote a piece full of scent deviations <laughs> and I went, watch this, <laughs> you know, um, and said, take these out. No violinist will ever be able to read these. Um, and then about five years later, I very bashfully said, Taylor, would you mind putting the scent deviations back into the oh, score because I, I need it. them. I <laughs> um, and he was very um, generous about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so definitely, it's, a, it's also a, something that happens as you grow up with mm. people. Mm. I mean, you know, when you get into a program at 18, 19, and you, and you really grow up mm. with your friends as musicians, yeah, you'll affect each other. And yeah. then, so now, you know, I, I, I believe I have a practice of reading his music and, and he can write yes. pretty much what he wants. And, and he, I think, also probably benefited from having a, an instrumentalist's, you know, close input in those early years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, for me, it's really it's made me, or it's making me take a lot more responsibility when I choose who to collaborate with, but just because I realise the, the impact that it, that we have on one another. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, in a professional environment, you can play many different kinds of work mm. and enjoy different things about it. But in terms of a, a collaboration, especially for a solo instrument, mm. like if I'm collaborating with someone on a solo violin piece, it just can't be for any reason other than the fact that I really believe this person will make a piece I'll want to play. Mm -hmm. And that's simply the only, uh, you, you know, parameter to consider. Yeah. And, you know, it makes kind of all the fussing that you have yeah. to do to get a big piece like that to happen really yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then it properly enters your um, your repertoire, right? It's not just about the pieces that you've done, but it's about the pieces that you feel a lot of ownership over and oh, sure. emotional attachment to. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, talking about collaborations, I um, can you tell me a bit about the way that you've been working with Girid and the piece, because you're not premiering it for eavesdropping because you have a formal premiere confirmed for next year but so what we're going to hear at eavesdropping is a sort of work in progress of like a, a test run for the material that you have is that correct that's right yes so it won't be a complete performance mm -hmm. uh the the entire piece will be about 45 minutes mm -hmm. we are going to perform about 30 minutes of material yeah which may 
uh, form an actual finished section of the eventual piece or which may then be reordered. Mm -hmm. um, but this presentation that we're doing is actually a very important step in our research that we're doing together. Um, Girid is a really fantastic listener. She's a, a sound artist and a composer and an instrument builder. Mm -hmm. And she also performs uh, very actively on the live electronics on, in this performance. Okay. She's performing at her book pad, her soundboard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the collaboration uh, began about, well, I asked for the, I asked if she wanted to make a piece uh, a little over a year ago. And then we had a first workshop last March in Bergen at the Borealis Festival. Uh -huh. We then did four days of research in Oslo this past September. And we did a little uh, presentation at the Oslo Music Technology Days. Won't even try to say the Norwegian name of that. <laughs> Um, and then now we're doing this um, research here for two days in London and then doing our presentation for, for you. Great. Um, so that's kind of how our collaboration has, has gone on. And it's a good example of just really l leaving enough time. Yes. Um, it's interesting that the project has changed so much since the beginning. You know, when we first started, it was going to have 10 loudspeakers and <laughs> all of these fancy schmancy things and now we've got just two loudspeakers really m more to achieve the kind of blend we mm -hmm. want and it's turned into um, a piece about the materiality of instruments and it's a gorgeous idea and I think it's going to be very nice to listen to <laughs> I hope anyway I don't want to give too much about it away um, uh, in, in any case I only know a tiny bit about it but there are, you have been building some instruments, is that, is that the right term to use? Yeah, so Girid has built um, four instruments. Uh, she built them at Notam in Oslo, which is a wonderful centre for electronic music. Um, They're laser-cut, very thin, furniture-grade plywood boxes, mm -hmm. and they are fitted with um, sort of, four-footed transducer speakers that stick on the inside of the box. Okay. So they act as resonators. They act really as resonating instruments, just as a violin does. Mm -hmm. So the idea, the piece is called Quintet for Five Boxes, or Music for Five Boxes. Okay. I think it's a working title still. Um, and there are four of these electronically uh, transducer-resonated boxes, and one... The fifth is the violin. Yeah, it's yeah. the analog... Resonator <laughs> box, um, and we also have some wooden, uh, some other wooden things that could resonate. And we're also actually thinking about for the the performance at Oxford House, uh, possibly using the wood in the room mm -hmm. because we we loved the idea that the the wood boxes would be performed in a, in a wood wooden box. box yes. so it's actually one of the reasons I decided that this would be a nice piece to do yeah. at eavesdropping yeah. um, because of the room. Yeah. So. I was thinking on the train today about um, the fact that there's a lot of discussion in our scene 
there has been for years about the state of new music and how we can fix it or how we can um, breathe life into it. Um, and I wanted to ask you not that question actually but uh, sort of to turn it on its head and ask you how we can breathe life into the life of performers and what are the necessary conditions to to cultivate um, a healthy and flourishing scene for us as performers yeah, it's a really big question, isn't it? Is it? Quite a big question. <laughs> if you could just fix it for us, I, right? <laughs> if I could have. <laughs> um, well, I think um, when it comes to breathing life into the industry, I I think only about the individual's practice and breathing life into that. Mm. I think to neglect one's own practice and one's own experience of that practice is to present something which it's hard to imagine anyone really liking that mm. much. Mm. Um, you know, there was, um, there was a phrase which, I, which was said to me by... Um, the, the guys who, who run music we'd like to hear, my dear husband John Lewy and Tim Parkinson and Marcus Trunk, um, about their ethos in presenting their concerts. And they said, um, we're making work available. And that kind of changed my life uh, when I started thinking about um, my own practice in that way. Mm -hmm. um, because... You mean that that, uh, that a concert or a performance is you making work available to the listening ears? Yeah, making work available to whoever feels like listening. Yeah. Um, so frequently in the past, I, I went through this process of choosing programs for this or that reason, mm. whatever reason, but when it actually comes to stepping on stage, there's just nothing worse than playing something you don't believe in. Mm. It sounds idealistic, but on a very practical kind of mundane level, it just doesn't feel very nice. Yeah. Um, so if you believe what you're doing and you want to make it available and someone doesn't like it, I believe that doesn't make you like, that does not mean you will then like it less. Mm. And that's, I think, what we as performers can do to breathe life into our experience. Mm. It's to cultivate our convictions about what we want to be making available. Mm -hmm. And I have tremendous respect for many of the members of London's experimental music community or new music community or just music presenters in London mm. who do follow that yes. ethos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautifully articulated. Thank you. So following on from that, since, um, as you know, eavesdropping is culminating in, in a symposium next year with a sort of clunky and 
somehow all-encompassing and yet nothing-encompassing theme of uh, female creativity and the legacy and future of women in new music. Um, I wanted to to find out what you think the issues are for women in new music. Or is is this the wrong way even to think about it? I always feel like um, any answer to a question along those lines must must be an offering uh, rather than a summation, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there's no answer that will that will round that off. Yeah. So. That's my disclaimer, I suppose, for anything I now say. Um, yeah. Well, so the issues for women in new music are probably the issues for women in the world. And in many respects, we're probably on the privileged end of that mm. because people who do new music hang out with artsy crowds Mm. who are more likely to, you know, be progressive thinkers. Mm. Um, And yet, of course, you know, we still see music festivals with no women programmed and symphony orchestras who've never commissioned a woman. Mm. Um, So there's a way to go. Um, I think the answer to that question will vary widely depending on the role you are playing in the music community at a given moment. So if you are a curator, my feeling would be that yes, you do have a responsibility to at least look in the direction of parity. And I believe that in full knowledge of the fact that that means extra work. So often we get sidetracked by conversations about whether or not the art will be good. The fact of the matter is that there is, first of all, (laughs) everyone thinks something different is good, but obviously there will be art or music, you know, um, which satisfies your tastes or priorities as a curator. um, And that this art can be made by individuals of all gender identities or gender expressions. Um, and equally, there will be art that does not satisfy your tastes right. or priorities. Um, the fact that it may require a bit more effort and research to identify the women composers who fit your mandate uh, is no excuse for not doing mm-hmm. that research because that's then just you, the curator, not doing your job, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and obviously as a performer, you know, Insofar as you have control over the music you play, which is not always, mm-hmm. um, because many things come into those decisions, you know, festivals, what they want, mm-hmm. and series and whatnot. Um, but I've just never found it difficult to um, to come up with uh, fantastic composers. <laughs> who are women, who, who I want to work with. So, 
yeah, I mean, if it's difficult for you. I just think it's a little bit a matter of underexposure and not quite looking far enough afield. Mm. Yeah. Certainly for myself, the, the first step was just paying it enough attention. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and in retrospect, I feel ashamed at how many years it, you know, just wasn't really something that I was considering. But, uh, yeah, once one does start paying attention, yeah, I haven't found it difficult at all, actually. And for me, there's no conflict between quality yeah. and, uh, what are we going to call it? Well, a concerted effort to, to include more women in my repertoire. It's, 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 there's no conflict at all. I mean, it, you're absolutely right. It does require some kind of concerted effort because um, we are still on the back foot mm. in terms of, just visibility yeah um which is why it's so heartening to see so many you know wonderful blogs uh where women performers are saying mm. here are a list of 10 female composers whose music i like mm. in their websites Xenia mm. pestiva did this recently and it was great it was mm. you know eight people i'd never heard of mm. from canada where i come from <laughs> you know so so uh so it's nice that we're just sharing in that way um i do believe it it's um something that still deserves a bit of extra effort yes because you know we would be fools to think that we aren't in some way subject to you know the dynamics that exist mm. in all society mm. but um the the blog post that you that you mentioned i it, it seems to me that there's a there's a real growing community of um of performers and particularly female performers actually blogging about their practice and and sharing their thoughts not just about the the um the sort of nitty gritty technical artistic side of their practice but also about the the political aspects that that overlap with that um and i feel yeah excited about about that sort of that online community which um which is beginning to form sure yeah i mean blogging is a very positive thing mm. overall for contemporary music mm. you see so many kind of grassroots communities and um reviewers and yeah forums for yeah. interesting sharing are you going to start one mirror not just yet not just yet. <laughs> busy doing other things well on that optimistic note i think i'll say thank you very much for talking to me, Mira. And thank you, Juliet, for putting on the eavesdropping series. <laughs> my pleasure. It really <laughs> is my pleasure. And I'm so looking forward to hearing your your piece with, with Girid um, and seeing the boxes. <laughs>